Philippians chapter 1 is our text. And I would encourage you, please, to familiarize yourself with uh, this little book. It's only four chapters long. It would be good if you could read it as much as you possibly can. Obviously not neglecting your own devotional reading, but as far as you can to just familiarize yourself with the truths and the sentiments that Paul is bringing to the church at Philippi. Also, 1 Corinthians as well. And do come along tomorrow evening as we'll be looking at a similar study, as it were, as we look at the introductory words of both of these epistles. Now, often it's easy for us to scan over these words and think that they're unimportant and they're just a matter of convention as Paul is writing a letter. But that is wrong because within these words, there, there are the keys to interpreting the whole epistle and indeed the theme of the epistle as we have before us. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to read it for you from another version of the scriptures, which is, I believe, more accurate in these two verses. And I want you to listen very, very carefully to the differences. Look down at your own version and look at the differences in this version. And indeed, this is how the Greek really bears out. It may look minute to you, but you'll see in a few moments later how it bears upon the whole meaning of this epistle. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Note the difference in the order, not Jesus Christ, but Christ Jesus. And not just servants, but bond servants. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, not of Philippi, but in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the Philippians is and has been known as the epistle of joy or the letter of joy. And 20 centuries ago, an itinerant tent maker by the name of Paul was tossed into prison for creating a public dis disturbance. And as he's in prison in the, the city of Rome, he takes it upon himself to use the time well and industriously, and he writes many epistles, several of which we have within the New Testament to churches around um, the Mediterranean particularly, and Asia. He sits down and upon probably a dozen pieces of scratchy paper, he writes the letter to the Philippians. Few people would recognize who the emperor of the day was when Paul was writing these words. It was Nero, of course. I don't know whether you know this, but Nero the Great was a great author, prolific author, but there is nothing whatsoever that remains of anything that Nero wrote. People don't really know anything about him apart from historians and classicists. You study these things, but if you were to ask even a man in the street who Paul the Apostle was, he would know probably all too well at least a few things about him, perhaps even his Damascus Road experience and his wonderful conversion. Indeed, the time has come, as T.R. Glover put it, when people call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. One of the important cities in the region which Paul was going to in his first missionary journey was the city of Philippi. We might wonder why Paul in particular went to Philippi. 
But as we analyze it, particularly the book of Acts, we find out that Paul didn't just choose himself to go to Philippi. In fact, if you look at, at Acts, particularly chapter 16 and chapters before it, you will find that Paul's intention was to go to a place called Bithynia. But we read that the Lord didn't want him to go there. In fact, we read that the Spirit of Jesus stopped Paul entering Bithynia and led him to go to a place called Troas. And when he was in Troas, asleep one night, God the Holy Spirit gave to him a vision. He saw a man standing before him, a Macedonian man. And that man was calling to Saul, Paul, come over and help us. Come over and help us. And in obedience to that vision, Paul and Silas and Timothy Luke set sail to Macedonia. And from Macedonia, they traveled into Philippi. And we read in the book of Acts that their stay in Philippi was quite short, but it was very eventful. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, and I would encourage you that if you read the book of Acts, you, you can get a lot of the context regarding the epistles of Paul that we have in the New Testament. But you will be familiar with the fact that often in his first missionary journeys, Paul always went to the synagogue in the town first. He went to the Jew first. He preached the gospel of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Jews so that they would understand. And that was God's uh, commendation through the Great Commission. But when they didn't hear him, then he went to the Gentiles and preached the gospel to them. But when he went into the town of Philippi, things were a little bit different because there was no synagogue in Philippi, probably because there wasn't enough Jewish men to make or warrant a synagogue. But as Paul traveled outside the city, just outside the city gate, beside a river, there was a group of some women, Jewish women, some of whom were Gentile proselytes, Gentiles who wanted to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there they were at the side of the river at a place, the Bible says, where prayer was wont to be made. The reason they were probably outside the city of Philippi was because Jewish-Roman relationships were not very good at that time. And of course, we know that they really never were good, even between the Jews and the Greeks. And the people in Philippi, the Romans... And those who came from that particular town of itself just saw Paul the Apostle and Christians in general as a sect of the Jews. They hated them just because they seemed to spawn out of Judaism. And in Acts chapter 16, verses 20 to 21, we find that Paul cast a, a fortune-telling demon out of a young slave girl. And because of doing that, the owners were so indignant and angry that they brought Paul and Silas before the city magistrates for causing an uproar in the town and for teaching traditions that these Roman people did not understand and was not their custom. But particularly, they were leveling against them the accusations that these Jews were stirring up trouble again. Well, because of that, Paul had to leave the city. And as he left the city, he left behind him a diverse group of converts. If you cast your mind back and study, particularly Acts 16, you will remember that there was a merchant woman by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, whose heart the Lord opened. And indeed, we are led to believe our whole household, whatever that means, were converted also. We know the famous story in Acts chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer, probably a Roman guard. There he is, and as the earthquake happens to free Paul and Silas from the jail, he realizes that his life's going to be taken from him because he was falling asleep there, and these two people, as far as he was concerned, escaped. And he cried out, what must I do to be saved? 
Paul said, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thine house. And the jailer and the family were all converted. The slave girl that I've mentioned already most likely was converted to Christ and added to the church in Philippi. And they probably all met, according to Acts 16, verse 40, in Lydia's house. Because she was a wealthy businesswoman, she probably had the biggest house to meet in for the church of Jesus Christ there in Philippi. So with this motley crew of young converts to Christ in the city of Philippi, all from varied and different circumstances of life and backgrounds, and they are the first church in the whole of the European continent to come to Christ and be formed as the Ecclesia. Called out ones from different backgrounds and circumstances, but all called together to the name of Christ by the grace of God to be a light in this dark place, to be salt in the earth, and to work together in the awful persecution that the church was facing at this time to the glory and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the first church in Europe. People converted from different backgrounds, different traditions, even different cultures. And you would imagine that in the midst of persecution from outside, there would have also been problems inside. And as Paul was calling for them to all work together for the cause of Christ, you can imagine that the task was not easy. In fact, we know from this letter that the task was extremely difficult. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians for a moment and verse 14. Chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul tells them, chapter 2 verse 14, Do all things without murmurings and disputing, without grumblings. Everything that you do, don't complain about it, which insinuates that they were complaining about the work that they had to do for the Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't working together well. Go to chapter 4, and verse 2, we see there another insinuation. I beseech Eudius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. There was contention. There was fighting between individuals, perhaps even factions, in this little small church at Philippi. Yet Paul was calling them to come together and work together for the call of Christ. Now I want you to see this, for this is extremely important. Paul is in prison in his particular situation, and he is writing out of prison to these Philippian circumstances of fighting within and tribulation and persecution from without, and he's telling them from his experience to rejoice in the Lord. You've got to feel the import of what that means. A prisoner from G for Jesus Christ is writing a letter to these people who are wrecked by factions and fightings and persecution from without, and he's telling them, Rejoice! Again I say rejoice in the Lord. That is why this epistle is called the epistle or the letter of joy. When I was studying this, I thought of the Louis Armstrong, you know, the black a jazz singer, his song that you often hear over the airwaves and on television, What a Wonderful World. What a Wonderful World. But the world in which these Christians lived, and I would vouch to say the world in which you find yourself living, is not a wonderful world. It is a fallen world. We have the Bible to prove that to us, but we know it from our own experience, even without the Bible, that we live in a fallen world that is acquainted with despair, depression, 
disappointment, dissatisfaction, and a longing in in most people for a, a general sense of lasting happiness that will not be fleeting, that will not disappear after one night or one day. And for many people in this world, long years are spent and invested in the pursuit of true, meaningful happiness. You can scan the bookshelves of even Christian bookshops, secular bookshops, and you'll see self-help books. You can go to hotels in our, in our country and in our capital, and you can hear motivational speakers about how to be successful in business, how to be successful in life. You can read in periodicals and magazines in your daily newspaper, advice columns that are all purporting to have the key to what true happiness really is. Yet for most people, many people at least, the door of happiness remains shut in their face. It's locked to them, and they still as yet have not found the key to true happiness. Why is that? Well, if you break up the meaning of the word happiness, it's haplessness. Haplessness. Happenings. Where your circumstances are determining how you feel. And you see, we cannot determine our circumstances. That is the problem with finding true happiness. We can't control our circumstances, and indeed it would seem it's the reverse. Our circumstances often control us, and we feel ourselves cocooned into things that we cannot change. Many people in the world call it fate. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. And maybe it's your job. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's the house that you live in. Maybe it's the church that you worship in. And you're seeking for happiness in those things, but you just can't seem to find it. You feel perhaps a bit like Paul. You're in prison. People like this normally move from one gap filler to the next on the merry-go-round of life. Indulging in all sorts of pleasures, some legitimate and illegitimate, trying to gratify their self and their ego, and number one, trying genuinely to feel happy, to feel satisfied, to feel that their life means something, that it fits into the whole circle of the universe in some important, significant way. But like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, who went after that pursuit of happiness himself, Everybody who follows down that yellow brick road finds that it never leads to that place, but rather they declare vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All. So how do we find it? Is it there? Can it be found? And if it can be found, how do we get there? Well, the first important elementary thing that we need to do today before we enter into any of the rest of this epistle is to show you and get into your mind the fact that there is a difference between happiness and joy. There is a difference between happiness and joy. Because happiness is determined by our circumstances, and because it's determined by circumstances, it's elusive, it's fleeting, it's like soap in our hands. One minute we think we've got it, and the next, when we go to grasp it, it escapes us. It disappears. Whereas joy that is written about in this epistle, and throughout the Word of God, which is opposed to happiness, we find the word 96 times in the New Testament. The Greek word for rejoice. 
96 times. So that the whole import of Scripture is trying to encourage us and enthuse us to be a rejoicing, joyful people in the sight of God. It is expected of us. And the noun joy, not the word rejoice, but the noun joy is there another 59 times. We are to be a people who are joyous. Two words, both the verb and the noun, are found 13 times in the epistle to the Philippians. And Paul is saying, you people, I'm writing to you from prison. You're imprisoned in your own circumstances. You've got problems in the church and you've got persecution from outside the church. But I am commanding you on God's behalf to rejoice. Now that's hard. The... Theme of this epistle is indeed divine joy, but you're sitting there asking the question, well, how is this possible? Stuart Briscoe entitled the series on the book of Philippians, Happiness in Life's Happenings. How can you have true joy in the midst of all the circumstances that are going on around you? Well, this is where we look at verses 1 and 2, because the primary concerns and themes that Paul has in this epistle, and indeed probably every epistle, If you examine this opening two phrases and and, and sentences, you will find that they're not meaningless pleasantries. It's not dear John or yours sincerely, just the way that people wrote letters in these days. We know from seeing other first century letters that Paul did use the normal convention when he was writing a letter. And that usually was simply writing the name of the writer, first of all, Paul and, and Timothy. And after this, there's some sort of a prayer or a wish for the person that you're writing to. So you also get the addressee and also what you want for the addressee, health or wealth or, or happiness or whatever. And as we look down at these first two verses, we find that Paul follows that normal convention. But a careful reader and student of the Word of God will look and see clearly that he diverges from the convention and he adds a couple of things to the introduction. Now I want you to see this because this will bear out our whole sermon this morning and indeed the whole theme and understanding of this book. And he is telling us, even in these first two verses, how you can know True joy from God. There are three important changes that I want you to see in these first two verses. The first is this. Paul doesn't just mention his name and Timothy, but he describes them as bond servants. Bond servants. Now you would expect it to begin like this. St. Paul to the Christians at Philippi, but rather we get slave Paul to all the saints in Philippi. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing is this. He doesn't refer merely to believers in Philippi, but he uses these terms specifically. All the saints together with the overseers and deacons. So the letter's not addressed to just one or two individuals, but it's addressed to all the church. And although he recognizes the leadership of the church and he gives them their place, he wants them to know that this is a letter to all these special people who have been set apart by God and for God in the the, the city of Philippi. Now, before we go to the third difference, I want you to notice this, how different this is from many of Paul's other epistles. Because if you go to the first and second verses of many of them, what he does right away is he lays down his authority. He lays down who he is, the qualifications that he has, the apostle Paul, made an apostle not of men but of of God. In some places he even goes in to the experience of the Damascus Road where he was made a Christian and made an apostle and ordained of Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But he doesn't do it 
here. He prefers rather to emphasize that he and Timothy are just nothing more than common slaves. Bond slaves. Yet he's careful on the other hand not to recognize his own authority, but whose authority is he recognizing? He's recognizing the authority in the assembly to the overseers and the deacons. So he's putting himself down and he's raising this church and its leadership up. Now, why is he doing this? This is the key to joy. It's the key to the epistle of the Philippians. And I want you to get it above everything else. You've got to get this today and right throughout the incoming weeks. And the key is found in chapter 2 and verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Why is this greeting constructed in this way? Because Paul, by example, even in the first couple of these words of the book, is trying to bring to the Philippians and indeed our hearts by the Holy Spirit the fact that true joy is found when we don't look at ourselves and look to ourselves and find joy in ourselves, but when we show concern for others at the expense of ourselves. Do not merely look out of your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Get this. Please get this. Do you want to be joyous? Do you want to know the real, true, living, supernatural, spiritual joy of God deep down and overflowing in your soul? Well, you've got to learn to be humble. Humility is the key to joy. Paul hopes this will happen. He wants them to stop murmuring and complaining. He wants Eudius and Syntyche to stop fighting. He wants humility between all the saints. He's not taking sides between the elders and between the members. He's not taking sides. Maybe Eudius and Syntyche wanted them to take either side of their, their debate and their argument, but he didn't do it. He came in and he humbled himself and he came before them and wrote this letter to all of them. Then the third difference it's found in the fact that Paul expands the traditional greetings in verse 2. This was normally given. It's a bit like dear sir and in our language, hope all's well or something like that. And in verse 2 he says, grace to you. Now the Roman and the Greek greeting was normally greetings to you. But he changes it to grace to you and peace. That's another change from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He changes greetings to grace. He changes a, a simple sentiment of wanting happiness for the people to peace, which is the outflow of grace. Now, why does he do it? Because again in verse 2, he's bringing to us the real theme of his epistle. He said on another occasion to the Corinthians, listen carefully and let it all slot together. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Do you see it? He's teaching them. 
He's instructing them that they need grace. And only through grace will they have the joy of peace. And what is peace? Only the outcome of reconciliation through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation between us and God, but also reconciliation between our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, how Paul is teaching them. Someone has said, rightly so, whatever Paul touches, it turns into the gospel. And he touches this normal greeting of the day and it turns into the gospel. He can't help it because the gospel is just welling up in his heart. But do you see, do you see how he's teaching them right at the very beginning in two verses in the introduction of his letter what the theme of everything is going to be and we're going to unpack it in the weeks that lie ahead. But I want to unpack a few here that are found even in these two verses in the time that's left to us. And it's five things that I want you to note in these two verses. The first, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy. Now here's how you'll know true joy. And we're breaking up this word humility to a practical way that Paul is teaching them in these two verses. You will know true joy when you prepare selflessly for the future. Get that? You will know true joy when you prepare selflessly for the future. Why did he mention Timothy? I believe one of the reasons why he mentioned Timothy was he was preparing this church and indeed other churches to be under the authority of Timothy when Paul moved on. Timothy's the young man. Paul is the older man. Youth and age are being yoked together in the service of God. And again, he, he's showing how there's this unity, how there's this humility. That he's not thinking this whippersnapper down here, I'm not going to mention him in my letter. But he unites together youth and age in the servants of God. And as Jowett, the great preacher, said, it is the union of springtime and autumn, of enthusiasm and of experience, of impulse and of wisdom, of tender hope and quiet, rich assurance. We as a church, now Marcus, young people and older people or middle-aged people or whatever you class yourself has, we will know joy as a church when we selflessly prepare for the future and when there is selflessness between the young and the old. Do you know why there are certain problems in some churches in our land today? It's because the young people want to rule the roost and they want everything their way. That causes a problem because it ostracizes older people who have different tastes and different needs and different wants in the congregation. But the converse of that is also another problem where the young people are ostracized and it is the selfish needs and wants and tastes of older people that are always given this way. But Paul says that there will be this joyous harmony and peace and unity when both of us, no matter whether we're young or old, sacrifice our own wants in the interests of others. Don't argue with me about it. It's all here in the book. If you want to know that joy, you've got to die to yourself. First two words he's teaching them. Then look at the next word. Bond servants. This is the second thing. Bond servants. This is what I want you to note here. When you give self-denying devotion to your master, you will know the true joy of God deep down in your heart. When you give self-denying devotion to your master. Bond servants. The Greek word is doulos. It's a slave. It's someone who is owned by someone else, 
who has got no will of their own, who does, goes and does things and goes places in obedience to their master. Their will is not their own. I believe it's an allusion to Exodus 21, where we read there of a servant who's given his emancipation and is allowed to go free, but he loves his master so much that he knows that he's better off with his master, and he stays with his master, and his master puts him up against a post and puts an awl through his ear and pierces him, and he becomes a devotee, not of duty, but of love toward his master. This is what Paul meant when he said in Corinthians 7, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. We are free, but we choose to be slaves for the Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Praise God, we've been freed from the bondage of our sin. But never forget, child of God, that we are expected to have devotion, service and bond slave devotion toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And until you have that selflessly, you will not know the joy of God deep down in your heart. Do you see how he's teaching these people? And you know, if you're a slave of your master, your master has to worry about your keep about the roof over your head and the clothes on your back and the food on the plate. And what does he say in this epistle, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The third thing I want you to notice, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, not as the author I says, but of Christ Jesus. Now here's the thing I want you to note here. When you follow your Lord's humble example, you will know the joy of God deep down in your heart. Some of you men will already know this, it's elementary, but I want you to bear with me because many of the young people will not know this, that there's a reason for this change in order in the name of Christ, Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, when Christ comes first in the name, it's speaking of him as the exalted one who emptied himself. First of all, Christ, Messiah, that's what he was in glory. That came first, the pre-existent one in heaven. But he emptied himself and he humbled himself and came to earth as the Lord Jesus. Do you see it? So Paul, even in this name, is speaking of the condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we read of him as Jesus Christ, it's talking about he, how he was despised and rejected of man. First of all, when he came to the earth, that's what happened. But he is Christ afterwards when he's exalted. He's risen from the dead and he's given a name that is above every name in heaven. See the difference? When it's Christ Jesus, it's speaking how he was in glory, but he condescended and became humble to the earth. When it speaks of Jesus Christ, it speaks of how on the earth he was despised, but one day he became exalted through his resurrection and ascension, and someday every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is God. Christ Jesus speaks of his grace coming from heaven to earth. Jesus Christ speaks of his glory, how the one who was despised and trodden of men is now exalted. Now, why does Paul choose this order, Christ Jesus? Because he wants these Philippians to follow their Lord's humble example. James, Peter, John, and Jude usually mention him as Jesus Christ. Because they knew him on the earth. But remember, when Paul first got to know him, he had been exalted. 
He was in heaven and it was the heavenly Christ. And that's why we find so many times in his epistle, he speaks of Christ Jesus. But what is perhaps the, the Magna Carta of this whole epistle, the key to it all and the most beautiful passage in it all? It's chapter 2. Let me read you it in this literal translation. Listen. Therefore, there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. United in the spirit, intent on one purpose, and do nothing from selfish, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. There's the word again. He is the bondservant of all bondservants that we are to look to and we are to follow. It's all becoming clear, isn't it? Well, let's move on. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. All the saints. Now here's the next thing. When you dwell with brethren in unity, you will know the joy of God deep down in your heart. What does the psalmist say? I love this psalm. How good and how pleasant it is and blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard of Aaron that went down to the skirts of his garments as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Where is the blessing commanded? When God's people lay aside their own selfish rights and start loving one another. Putting others before yourself. You know what the biggest threat to this little church was? It was disunity. Do you know what the biggest threat to the church, Jesus Christ and Ulster is? It's disunity. It baffles me, you know. And I know I have my doctrines and you have yours and everybody has theirs. But I go into wee towns, I was even driving through one yesterday, and there must have been half a dozen churches. I know we have liberty of conscience. But it's getting ridiculous today. You think one thing different than another, brother, and you go off. Can I just tell you here that the reason why Paul directs everything towards the saints is this. Because one mark of holiness, that's what saints mean, not somebody on a stained glass window, but every child of God is a saint, but it means they're called to live holy lives. One of the greatest marks of living a holy life is unity with your brothers and sisters. We have spawned the doctrine in this nation and in this land that separation is a mark of holiness. And it is. Separation from the world and separation from false doctrine. And I'm not talking about the fundamentals of the gospel here. But what I am talking about is this. One of the greatest marks of holiness is unity with their brethren and sisters in Christ. And we've lost that somewhere. Leslie Flynn wrote a book called Great Church Fights. <laughs> Must have been a long one. And he penned this verse, Believe as I believe. 
no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think, eat as I eat, and drink as I drink, look as I look, do as I do, then I'll have fellowship with you. Paul, to all the saints. Well, finally, in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, in Philippi, yet in Christ Jesus. You see, the fifth thing I want you to notice is when you recognize your heavenly citizenship and your position, you will know the joy of God deep down in your heart. Now, this is like a resume of the whole epistle, and it's only in the first two verses, but that really excites me. They're in two places at the one time. They're in Christ Jesus, yet at the same time in Philippi. And what he's saying is, Christ is your source of life, yet Philippi is your sphere of life. You're living in one place, but in another sense you're in a heavenly place. And that is how to survive life's circumstances. It's the secret of joy in the Christian life. To be in Christ, when in Belfast, when in London, when in Los Angeles, when in Paris, when in Japan, when in the workplace, when at school. Wherever you are, the secret of it all, of joy, is being in Christ and bringing Christ into those places and changing those places through Christ. You will know the joy of God when you abide in Christ. It's all summed up. Joy comes in Christ through humility and through unity. That's what this epistle is about. And isn't it interesting that his own joy is unrelated to his circumstances? He's in prison. They're in troubles and persecution. But the contentment and the joy that he knows is the fact that even though he's locked up and they're in problems, that he's confident that the grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is advanced. And here's the, the real crux of the matter of his joy. He doesn't care that even his own inconvenience comes upon him, his own pain he is beaten, he's downcast, he's put into prison as long as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forward. That's the key to joy. When you see people saved, the church build up, and Christians deepen no matter what it costs for you. That's joy. As we enter into this epistle, as we finish our sermon this morning, can I quote Alec Mateer and what he says, and I want this to be our sentiment. Why should the world heed our evangelism if it does not see in the church that Christ has solved the problems of isolation, alienation, division, which curse and blight its own life? This is what the world is waiting for today. As it did in Philippi in Paul's day, it waits for the sight of a people who have solved its problems through the reality of being in Christ and whose lifestyle sets forth the old God-given morality with fresh loveliness as the holy likeness of Jesus is seen in them. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, there are those in this building at this moment who are going through very difficult days. 
those who feel imprisoned by happenings and circumstances. But we pray in the weeks that lie ahead, Father, that we will know the emancipation of the Spirit of God in our hearts as we realize that it is through the cross that we have life. Thank you for our Lord and for how he humbled himself. Father, help us to trod the path that he trod, that others may see him and his humility in us. Help us to stop fighting for our own rights, what we want, but put the interests of others before the interests of ourselves. And help us all to render up our sword that thou shalt conqueror be. Amen.